Brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Good to see you this morning. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, we are happy to be with you this morning. All of you that are in person, can you give a big cheer to those that are worshiping with us online? Just let them know that we know that you're there. We love you. We miss you. As soon as you're physically able, come back. We would love to see you here. We got plenty of space for you. Also, I, I hope you got one of these little guys on the way in. Guys, we're taking communion today. Thanks be to God. Man, I'm telling you, we live in such strange times. I was thinking this morning, what would we say to the apostles about this? You know, like, well, we couldn't do it for a couple weeks because uh, uh, communion was on back order. I go, what? Well, it's like these little things and they break off these little pieces of bread and they wrap it in cellophane and they go, what? They go, but you know, but we're getting around to it. They go, all right, well, whatever, as long as it takes you. So, but here we are. This is great. So I'm going to preach for a little bit on the book of Revelation and then we're going to come in for a landing at the table and the Lord Jesus has promised to meet with us and to speak to us and to bless us and to heal us at the table. And so I'm looking forward to that. I'm in the book of Revelation chapter 2. If you have Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't, it'll be up on the screen. As we have been doing, as we've preached through the book of Revelation, as we're starting each of the sermons by declaring our faith together. There's a creed that the church has taken on its lips for 1,700 years summarizes the great truths of Scripture, summarizes the great characters of Scripture, the plot of Scripture, so that anything that we say about any book of the Bible, it ought to come out of the church's faith and build up the church's faith and also lead back into the church's faith. And so it's our framework, it's our space. So I want you, I know that you were just standing, but you like getting the blood flowing. It's a little exercise. So let's stand up on your feet one more time if you're able to. I mean, you stand up on your feet. Let's are not going to stand up on your feet. But you stand up on your feet if you're able to. And let's declare our faith together this morning. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified, and he has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now here we are. In the presence of Almighty God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are in the presence of the great high priest, Jesus, who leads us up to the Father. We are in the presence of the Spirit 
who is named the Lord and the life giver, proceeding from the very heart of the love that is shared by the Father and the Son, reaching out to us, reconciling us, making us whole. We're in the presence of that God. And we are looking forward, as the creed declares, we are looking for the resurrection of the dead. We are looking for the resurrection of the dead. In a world that is broken by sin and stained by sin, in a world that is torn to pieces by sin, we are trusting that there is a day coming when you will not evacuate us out of this place, but you will rush into this place with your presence so powerful that it will renew the face of the earth, as the prophet said. We're looking for the resurrection of the dead. Bodies will rise, and we'll live with you forever in the kingdom that has no end. We're looking for that this morning. So, Lord, now we pray that you would take these scriptures this morning. We pray that you would bless them and break them and use them to feed us and to make us strong. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Strengthen our listening, strengthen the preaching, and deliver us safely into your kingdom, we're asking. Grant it, we say. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, you may be seated. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, I know your hard work, and I know your perseverance. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows us through and through. Can I get an amen? He knows us. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. I know that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. But if you don't repent, I will come to you, and I'll remove the lampstand from its place. But if you have this in your favor, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says, not just to the Ephesian church, but to... Are you there? I need to know. This isn't, it wasn't rhetorical. I just need some group participation here. What the Spirit says to who? To the churches. That's right, to the churches. To the one who overcomes, to the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said... Thanks be to God. Recapping chapter 1, real quick, what we looked at as we opened the book of Revelation is that Revelation is not first of all interested in disclosing to us information about the end. But people think of it that way. This is a book about the end times. Well, yes, but it's not first about the end times, is it? Revelation translates the Greek word apocalypse, which just means, if you remember it, unveiling. It just means unveiling. And as we saw in chapter 1, what is unveiled or who is unveiled in the revelation is who? It's Jesus Christ. It's not seals and it's not scrolls and it's not trumpets and it's not the whore of Babylon and it's not the beast from the abyss. I mean, all of that is coming. It's part of the revelation. But the one revelation of God is who? Jesus Christ. And that Christ that we confess has a twofold identity, as we confess in all of the historical creeds. Number one, he is like a son of man. 
Scripture says that he is like us in every respect, yet without sin. He's not just true God of true God, but he's true human of true human, born of the virgin Mary. He shares our flesh, and yet, at the same time, fully man, he is fully God. The glory of God radiates through him. Divinity sits in him. The second person of the Godhead is not sitting somewhere off behind him, but this man, Jesus of Nazareth, born of Galilee, crucified on a Roman cross, raised to life again on the third day, this man, Jesus Christ, is also and forever God. Can I get an amen? And the first thing that this Jesus says to the church when he appears, as he reveals himself to John, unveils himself to John, is he says, do not be, do you remember it? Do not be afraid that he's speaking a word of fearlessness to John, which John is then going to speak to the church, and the church is therefore going to speak to the world. It is our first address to the world. Christ Jesus is raised from the dead. Uh, don't be afraid. Everything's going to be okay. And now we get to this moment in Revelation where instinctively I think a lot of us would love to go beyond. We would love to go somewhere else. We'd love to go from the revelation of Jesus Christ into chapter 4 of Revelation. The heavenly worship, the ancient of days, seated on the throne, the four living creatures and the 24 elders gathered around the throne. That's where we'd like to go. Or to chapter 5 where we see a lamb seated on the throne and breaking open the seals and the scrolls and beginning to unfold to us the meaning of history. That's where we'd like to go. Or to chapter 6 with the seals and that unveiling of history. That's where we want to go. And instead, John won't let us go there. What does he do? Well, John takes us, well, he takes us to church. He takes us to church, which may come as a surprise to us. But John understands that we will not understand anything about the revelation of Jesus Christ until we've gone to church, until we've reckoned with the church. And I think that this matter, this matter of going to church, this matter of John taking us into these churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, places not in the heavens, but places on a map. He takes us to Sardis. He takes us to Philadelphia. He takes us to Laodicea. John taking us there before we get to the throne room and all of the other stuff is of the greatest possible significance for our understanding who God is and what it is he's doing on planet earth. There are, of course, seven churches, which is John's way of saying wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The number seven in the scriptures is an incredibly important number, and scholars and thinkers and pastors down through the centuries have speculated about the number seven and what's going on here. Maybe... Maybe, some have thought, that the number seven signifies that these churches are representative of like the seven deadly sins, those great errors that undermine humanity, that ruin our humanity. Maybe they're the seven deadly sins. Maybe that's the significance of the number seven. Or maybe, maybe the significance of the number seven is that they represent, by contrast, they represent seven virtues, seven habits, seven practices, seven identities that we can live into that are good for us to live into. Maybe it's that. So we try to locate it in significance there. Others down through the centuries have thought maybe, maybe the seven churches represent seven epochs or seven eras of church history and how the Lord has moved upon his church down through the centuries. And so what we're doing then is we're trying to find something exemplary in one way or another about the church that we can then live into. But I think all of that misses the significance of this. 
when you read the letters to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3, what you find out is that these churches are very ordinary. They're very just like us. In so many ways, their obedience is heroic. They've resisted the seductions of the world, and they've resisted the seductions of the empire, and they've worked hard for Jesus, and they've been faithful to Jesus. And on the other hand, they have gross areas, gaps in their character and their spiritual formation. There are places where instead of resisting, they've accommodated the empire. When instead of remaining faithful to Jesus, they've given up faithfulness. They've tolerated things in their midst that they should not tolerate. These folks are not all that different from us. They're very similar to us. The great Eugene Peterson says that a random selection of seven churches in any century, including our own, would turn up something very much like the seven churches. These churches, brothers and sisters, are not amazing. They're very much like us. But there's something significant about that. That if we understand that ordinariness of the church, then we'll see something beautiful about how God moves in the world. Look down at the text, chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus says that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who what? seven lampstands. They're heroic. They're amazing. They've done good work. They've been faithful to Jesus. They're compromised. They've been lured in by the seductions of the world. They've not been very faithful to Jesus. And yet, Jesus Christ says what? That he, he walks among the seven lampstands. John is drawing attention to something that's critical for our making sense of how God moves in the world. Namely, that there is the closest possible proximity between Jesus and his churches. That Jesus is not speaking to them from a cloud, and he's not speaking to them from up in the sky. But Jesus is speaking to the church from where? From inside the church. We have it on his own word. Jesus himself said that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, what? There he is, right in the midst of them. That's not poetic smoke that he's blowing at us. That's a hardcore fact. It's a promise. The living Lord Jesus Christ has taken us and made us part of his body so that wherever we are, he is. And wherever he is, we are. Paul draws attention to it in Ephesians chapter 1. Probably nobody in the New Testament understood it as deeply, I think, and spelled it out as clearly as Paul. Listen to how Paul talks about the church. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. But that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So where, according to Paul, is Christ Jesus? At the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Hold on to that idea. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, 
and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is what? The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus Christ is also where? He reigns from the Father's right hand inside the church. And Paul's claims would be audacious if they weren't inspired by the Spirit. That Paul says that the church is not just a group of people who happen to gather in Jesus' name, and we like Jesus a lot, and he's kind of the founder of our cool little club. Paul says that the church is the very body of Christ. Touch your neighbor real quick. I know it's COVID and all of that, but... You have just laid your hands on Jesus, the presence of Jesus. Do you get that? You have just encountered the risen Christ sitting right next to you, full of the Spirit, overcoming in this life. Are you with me this morning, brothers and sisters? He goes on to say that the church is his body and it is also the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ Jesus has poured his identity into the church. It's the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is the doorway through which Jesus Christ comes marching into the world. Can I get an amen, brothers and sisters? So if you ask the Apostle Paul, where is Christ Jesus? He says that Jesus is seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms where? In the church. But he goes on, Ephesians chapter 2. He says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you see the marriage between the two? Where is Jesus Christ? But where are we? We're seated with him in the heavenly places. We have been married to Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ, so that wherever we go, he goes. And wherever he goes, we go. Which is why Paul concludes Ephesians chapter 3 by saying that although I'm the the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. God's intent was that now through who? The church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to try to say this to you the clearest way that I know how. You will not know anything about the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in the world, unless you understand that the church is part of that apocalypse. That the church is the apocalypse. You want to know where is it on planet earth where God is revealing his goodness Where is it on planet earth that God is revealing his mercy? Where is it on planet earth that God is revealing his love? Where is God revealing the reconciling work of Jesus Christ? In the church. He's doing it in the church. We're part of that that unfolding revelation. We are part of the apocalypse. That it's not something that's to come out there, but it's something that every time we gather in this place, 
Every time we lift holy hands in prayer, every time we abandon ourselves to the Lord, every time we lift up our worship, every time we open the scriptures, every time we embrace one another in love, every time we come undone at the table and we experience his presence at the table, every time that happens, God steps again onto the stage of history. Can I get an amen? The first impact and the final destination of the work of the triune God in the world is the church that gathers in Jesus' name, upbuilt daily by the Spirit. These things are hard to appreciate, I think, steeped as we are in this wildly individualistic American culture, which somehow got into the water supply of the church, and all of a sudden we lost sight of the church as the means by which God is reconciling all things to himself. We started talking about the gospel in individual terms. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, which is not wrong, but it eclipses the great corporate work, the ecclesiological work of God in Christ. And so we, what we do is we invite people into a personal relationship with Jesus, and then what we do is we treat the church like a spiritual YMCA. Where you can come here, we will introduce you to your precious little personal relationship with Jesus. And then we're going to equip you with all of the things that you need to have a healthy spiritual life. Okay, we're going to give you some principles and some booklets and some nice stuff that you can do to go beyond your merry way. Meanwhile, the church itself is incidental to us. It's just a means to an end. first impact and the final destination of the work of the triune God in the world is the church that gathers in Jesus' name, upbuilt daily by the Spirit of God. Thomas Merton put it like this. He said that the more I become identified with God, in other words, the more we press into a personal relationship with God, the more I will be identified with all the others who are identified with Him. And His love will live in all of us. His Spirit will be our one life. The life of all of us and the life of God. And we shall love one another and God with the same love with which he loves us and himself. For that love just is God himself. The ultimate perfection of life is not a heaven of separate individuals, each one viewing his own private intuition of God. It is a sea of love, rather, which flows through the one body of all the elect, all the angels and the saints, and their contemplation would be incomplete if it were not shared. Oh, guys, do you understand that in a world marred by sin, in a world marred by death, in a world scarred by the great rebellion, this is what God is doing. You know, in the old English, the root word for sin, you know what it is? Sunder, sever. That's what's happened to our world. It's sundered, separated, divided. We're afraid of one another, fearful for our lives. We demonize one another. And what God is doing in the church is he's breaking down all of those barriers and he's building up a people that can testify to the reconciling work of God in Christ. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm sure you have too. Grew up in a wonderful church in central Wisconsin, Believer's Church. city was 18,000 people, a church of seven or 800 people. And if you did not grow up in a good church, man, I cannot tell you what a blessing it is to be surrounded by spiritual moms and spiritual dads and aunties and 
uncles and brothers and sisters and grandmas and grandpas, all who know your name and who love you and are praying for you. I can't tell you how many times I walked into that church when I was a kid or a teenager struggling with whatever. And I'd have somebody come out of the blue and they'd go, Andrew, aren't the Lord laid you on my heart this morning. And I just want you to know, and they'd rattle off some prophetic word for me that would hit me in all the places that it count. Built up and made strong by the word of God that came through human words in the church. Two of my pastors are here this morning, Glenn Smith and Vicki Smith. They joined our church in 1985. I can't tell you how many times I walked into that church. They're responsible for so much of who I am. I've said it so many times over the years that every good gift that I have ever been given in my life has come by way of the church. Spirit, which is the breath of God, that spirit is filling the lungs of the church. And it's making its way to the furthest extremities of the body of Christ. The blood of Christ, brothers and sisters, flow through, flows through our veins. It is healing us and making us strong. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know you have too, Mandy and I. For seven years, we pastored a church in Denver, Colorado, Bloom Church. Bloom was organized in house churches. It was a beautiful model. There were these communities of 15 to 40 or so people sometimes that lived intentionally together. It was an intentional effort to be the church. and They loved each other well and cared for each other so well. I remember one time we overheard that a family in the church had lost their job and was facing what seemed like sure financial ruin. And do you know what happened? The house church rallied together and said, oh, we got your back. They raised seven, $8,000 for this family and said, We'll pay for three months of mortgage just to give you a little bit of space to figure out what's next for you. Guys, these were people that unless Jesus had been raised from the dead, would not have been in the same room together. And yet there they are bleeding for each other. Where is heaven on earth? Where is the kingdom on earth? Where is Jesus Christ on earth? In the church, and I see it every Sunday when we gather I see the light in your eyes. I see the love in your hearts for each other. Nine months ago, barely any of us knew each other. Just a few of us were friends. Now you walk into this place on Sunday morning, and it feels like a taste of heaven itself. And that light that is in your eyes, and that love that is in your hearts, when you wrap your arms around each other, when you pull each other close, when you lay hands on each other, that light that's in your eyes, when the other person walks into the room, that light I'm suggesting to you is not the light of human ability. It's not just us being nice, but that is the light of the resurrected one inside of us. It's the life of very God himself inside of us. So that when I look, when I look in your eyes and I see your gladness, I'm seeing the gladness of the Father through, through you to me. We're tangled up in the life of God. Jesus himself said it, John 17. He said that my prayer is not for them alone, not just for his 12 disciples. He said, but now I'm praying also for all of those who will believe in me through their message. That's all of us, 100% of us in this room. That's all of us. Jesus was praying and is praying for us. He said, this is my prayer, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
and have loved them with the same love with which you have loved me. I have given them, Jesus said, the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When I was a kid growing up in that church in central Wisconsin, we had this old camp meeting tune that we used to sing. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the spirit. And we are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they will know that we are Christians by our love. And they will know that we are Christians by our love. Oh, friends. John writes, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete among us. Paul will say elsewhere that no one can see God. He is not the kind of being that can be seen. If you tried your hardest, no matter how spiritual you become, you will never be able to behold the unbeholdable being of God. But, John says, if we love one another, then we can see God. The only way the unseeable God is seen on human earth is through the love that the believing community shares. It's a love made possible by the Spirit. It's a love made possible by the Spirit. And to the extent that we have opened ourselves up to the love of God and we have shared the love of God, then the lampstand of Jesus burns bright among us. Which is why Jesus says that you need to repent. He doesn't tell them to repent because their political beliefs are wrong. He doesn't tell them to repent because there's something wrong in their praxis. He doesn't tell them to repent because they don't have all of their doctrinal ducks in a row. Why does he tell the Ephesian church to repent? You have forsaken your, your first love. Scholars get all kind of tied up about this. They go, well, the first love, what's that talking about? Are we talking about the love that we have for God? Or are we talking about the love that we have for one another? Are we talking about the love that we have for the world? We need to know exactly what love that is so we know how to repent of it and make it right. I got news for you, brothers and sisters. The love of God is not divided. There is one love of God, and that love is saving the world. That love is pouring into us, and it's awakening praise. It's awakening devotion. That love is pouring into us and it's awakening unity with one another. That love is pouring into us and out of us into the world and it's saving the world. Is it love for God? Yes. Is it love for one another? Yes. Is it love for the world? The whole challenge of the Christian life is to let ourselves be conquered anew by the love of God that conquers all divisions. And if it doesn't happen in the church, where is it going to happen? This is a place where miracles happen. We said it earlier, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Let me tell you about the miracle working power of God. I've got a good friend, the pastor's on the East Coast. He's worked hard over the course of his pastoral career to engineer a community, set the stage for a community that's multicultural and multi-ethnic and people from all classes and 
people of all persuasions, everybody there gathered together under the one name of Jesus who is Lord. He's fought hard for that. But in a world that is divided as ours is, that is a challenge. And so you're always looking for those signs of hope. Is the Spirit really at work among us? And he said he was preaching one Sunday morning and he looked down on the front row and there was a young woman on the front row, woman of color. She was wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt there on the front row, worshiping Jesus. I said, well, that's fascinating. He said, well, yeah, what's more fascinating is who was sitting next to her. I said, who was sitting next to her? She said it was an old white man wearing a Make America Great Again hat. Waymaker. Miracle worker. Promise keeper. Light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. And if it does not happen in the church, where is it going to happen? Oh, guys, but it is happening in the church. God is tearing down the walls between us. And he is making for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, white, black, brown, everything in between. God is making us the one body of Christ. He's doing it by the power of his spirit. The challenge is surrendering to it. Let's stand to prepare our hearts for communion. Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Spirit of God. Family, just begin to yield your lives to the Lord again. Spirit of God, Spirit of the living God, we say conquer us. Spirit of the living God, we say subdue us again. With the one love with which God has loved us in the person of his son, conquer us again, we pray. We're offering our lives to you. We're offering our hearts to you. We're offering our bodies to you. We're saying, come, Spirit of the living God, and race through us. Come, Spirit of the living God, and conquer us. Come, Spirit of the living God, redeem us. Come, Spirit of the living God, wash away sin and selfishness in us. Come, Spirit of the living God, awaken us to our destiny in Christ Jesus. Awaken us to our destiny as the church. Awaken us to our, our identity as the one people of God. Grant it, we pray. And as we come to you this morning, Lord Jesus, we're not coming arrogantly and we're not coming, coming haughtily. We're not coming with pride in our hearts. But we're coming laying everything out before you. And so as we come to the table, we make this our prayer of confession. Say it with me, brothers and sisters. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. Brothers and sisters, the scripture declares that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you can receive that this morning, give God praise. We say thanks be to God for that, that you're making us new in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing this last song of worship, and then I'm going to take us to the table together. Let's sing together.
the elements in your hands. The Apostle Paul says that when you take this, you have to take it recognizing Jesus. You have to take it recognizing Jesus. That we don't just take it as bread and cup wrapped in weird cellophane, but we take it as the pledge of Jesus' own presence to us. And we could never explain it metaphysically. Well, how is it the presence of Jesus? We don't know. In the same way that we don't know how we are the ongoing presence of Jesus, what we do know is that Jesus has taken us and made us part of his life. And then he's chosen to take weird little wafers like this and a little bit of juice, and he's called it into his own life, and he distributes it back to us as the living body of the resurrected life. Would you now, as you hold the elements in your hand, would you just begin to lift up adoration to the Lord? We worship you, Jesus, and we recognize you, Jesus. We recognize you, Jesus. And as we come to the table, we're not coming because we're so worthy. We're coming because you're so good and because you love us so much. Freely you've loved us. Freely you gave everything for us. That we'd be sons of and daughters of the living God in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we remember now that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it. Can we break it, brothers and sisters? You said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. This is my body. It's broken for you. Where you were broken, where you were shattered, where the world was splintered into pieces, I was splintered into pieces. I took that in my body. It's broken for you. Do this in whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. The bread of heaven bread of the presence. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know what the new covenant is? It's not laws written on stone, but it's the way of God written on the tablets of the human heart. God is etching his character into us every time we come to the table. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, Jesus says. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me, brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Let's take it together. And now begin to lift up thanksgiving to him in your heart. We say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But we worship you, Lord Jesus. We allow ourselves once again to be conquered by the love that you are, the love that you have, the love that you give. We ask that your kingdom would come in us. And that your will would be done in our bodies, in our lives, in our church, in our city, just like it's done in heaven. Grant it, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. And now let's lift our voices up in, in praise, the doxology here. Sing it with me. Praise God from out saints lift up your worship praise him oh creatures here below come on open up your lungs and sing it praise him
bless his heart with your amen. Come on. Ah, we agree with you, Jesus. Ah. Hallelujah. And now as you go from this place, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, God's people. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You're loved. You're loved. Coffee truck is still here. Yeah, coffee. Tacos. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go outside, grab a taco, enjoy some fellowship with one another. We'll see you next Sunday.